We are continuing in our study of the book of Acts. Last week we looked at the first 18 verses of chapter 11 and had a conversation about unity versus uniformity and how in many spaces we seek to achieve unity by enforcing a type of uniformity. Today, we're going to take a look at the second half of Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. And I think maybe to start our conversation this morning, um, over the years, I've had conversations with lots of women and men who follow Jesus. And I think to be honest, these conversations tend to happen mostly in kind of more evangelical, charismatic spaces, where I will hear folks say that they really want to experience like the early church, that they just wish the church could be like the early church. And what I learned over the years is that frequently when that would be expressed, what the person was really saying or pointing to or paying attention to were the supernatural components of what the early church experienced. They wanted to experience these moments like Pentecost, where the Spirit falls and people start speaking in tongues and thousands of people come to faith all in one moment. They wanted these moments of profound healings in their communities. And that tended to be the gist of those conversations, that we want our church to be like the early church and we want in that to begin experiencing supernatural workings of the Spirit in our community. And I think as we read through the book of Acts, we increasingly realize that that, that absolutely happened, that Pentecost happened, that thousands of people came to faith in Jesus in that one moment. We see all of these miraculous healings happening, and yet that's just one component of what the early church is. That what the early church begins to demonstrate and live out, there's a lot more to it. And that's the conversation I'd like to try to have this morning about Acts chapter 11 verses 19 through 30. There I think we see some maybe core values, some core components, some aspects of just what it means to be the early church. And I'd like to see those things and identify those things and then see what it might mean for us today. The passage begins in verse 19. Luke writes this. Um, and I, I'll start this a little differently. You were already with the, you were doing it and I changed it. I'm sorry, Jay. Um, Well, okay, first, the church in Antioch, right? In verse 19, the, the story in verses 1 through 18, it happens in Jerusalem, right? Peter's coming home. He goes to Jerusalem. He's met with criticism. And that criticism is aimed at Peter entering the house of a Gentile person, eating a meal with a Gentile person. And then there's questions around what it means for the Gentiles to be responding to the gospel, and then becoming part of the church. In verse 19, what we're going to find out 
is that there has been a mission to the Gentiles for a long time that the church in Jerusalem did not know about, that they were unaware of, and that it's here in chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, where they're going to hear about something that's been happening in Antioch. All of this is connected back to Stephen and his stoning. If we, you remember back, probably at this point, months, when we had this conversation about Stephen, and Stephen was stoned to death, and after that, we're told that there was a great persecution that broke out in Jerusalem, and we're told that Jewish families, women and men, they, they spread out from Jerusalem all across the region into Samaria, into further parts of Judea, into the ends of the world. And as they went into those places, they just started preaching the gospel where they went. They just started sharing the good news about Jesus where they went. And something for me, just as we work our way through the book of Acts, that like I really wish Luke had included was like time markers. I really wish there were things in the book of Acts where Luke was like, 10 years ago, this happened. Or that we just knew how long things were took or what time that had elapsed in between things. So I'm going to offer this based on a collection of research. It's roughly been 10 years since Stephen was stoned and this story. Roughly a decade. And what I think is kind of funny and beautiful a little bit as we get ready to start working our way through this is that we just finished a passage where these Jewish Christians in Jerusalem are really kind of up in arms and critical about the idea of Gentiles joining in. And yet, for about a decade, there's this really large influential church where the Gentiles have been in all along. And so, in verse 19, Luke begins by writing this. Now, those who had scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Luke tells us that some of these Jewish followers of Jesus who landed in Antioch, they started sharing the gospel with the Greeks. That is a synonym for Gentiles. To people in Antioch, unlike to the faction of people in the Jerusalem church we talked about last week, it seems like sharing the gospel with Gentiles was a no-brainer from the very beginning. And it's interesting to me, too, that in this passage, Luke doesn't cite one person by name. In the first three verses, not one person is cited by name. Everywhere else up until this point in the book of Acts, we're never wondering who are the main actors in a story. The apostles are well known. Luke is constantly talking about Stephen and Philip and Peter and all of these other apostles and all the things that they're doing. And yet we get here and in these first three verses, Luke just uses general pronouns. Those, them, and men. That's all we get. 
There aren't any apostles in Antioch. There aren't any early church celebrities in Antioch. There are instead regular everyday women and men who are empowered to live out Jesus' kingdom mission. In the midst of a city that is referred to as the abode of the gods, all throughout Antioch and the surrounding region, people worshiped multiple Greek gods, including Artemis, Apollos, Astarte, Poseidon, and Zeus. And in a general sense, Antioch and its surrounding region were known for its rampant immorality. These regular everyday women and men fled Jerusalem and started building new lives in a city and region that was generally hostile to the gospel and without any apostles or any early church celebrities, they built a thriving church community where to them, we just preach the gospel to everybody and we figure out how to be a church together. The first thing I think for us to just notice in this passage is that the church in Antioch empowers every person to live a king, their, to live Jesus' kingdom mission. Every person. When we think of what it might mean for us to be a church that's like the early church, it means being a community that empowers every person in it to live Jesus' kingdom mission. The second thing about this is that the church in Antioch is inclusive. We've talked about this a lot. I don't want to belabor the point, but I also want to keep making it because I think it's important for us to continue learning this and talking about this, and because I think it's something that we don't oftentimes see in the American church. The church in Antioch is inclusive. Back in Jerusalem, some of the Jewish followers of Jesus are trying to figure out whether or not Gentiles can be in the same church as them, whether or not they can sit at the same table and enter into the house of someone who is a Gentile. And yet in verse 20, Luke tells us that some of the people who helped build the church in Antioch were from Cyprus, which is in the Middle East, and Cyrene, which is in Northern Africa. And living in Antioch would have been Greeks, Syrians, Persians, and Indians. The church in Antioch is multi-ethnic, it's multi-racial, and it's inclusive of both Jews and Gentiles. Even though the church at Jerusalem is considered, at least by the Jewish followers of Jesus, as the leading church amongst all of the early churches, Yet here in Antioch, there's a church community that's far out in front of them in a lot of ways. It didn't take a vision from the Lord for these women and men to understand that to build the kind of community that would be countercultural in Antioch, they needed to build something that made space and included every one of their neighbors, no matter their ethnicity, race, or religious background. And Luke tells us that this group of everyday women and men who are empowered to live out Jesus' kingdom mission, they themselves are racially, ethnically, and religiously diverse. And they're so effective in their ministry that in verse 21, 
Luke says, for the first time in this, in this passage, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Notice that in the first three verses that end with, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord, there's not one story of some supernatural event. They may have, it may have happened, but Luke doesn't seem interested in, if that did happen, sharing that with us. What Luke is pointing to in these first three verses is that everyday women and men spread out from Jerusalem after Stephen's persecution are living the kind of lives that are countercultural enough and appealing enough that their message about Jesus is appealing enough in the midst of this immoral city and region that great numbers of people are believing and turning to the Lord. And just for a moment, I think it's worth saying, I think sometimes as Christians we can believe that the only way large numbers of people will ever come to faith is through a large supernatural event. And we miss the fact that our lives can be enough. That the way that we live individually, the way that we live corporately as a community, the ways that we share about Jesus, the ways that we go into our places of work, our lives can be compelling enough. Apart from needing a supernatural move of the Spirit, for people to have their lives changed. The third thing I think that matters for us is that the church in Antioch embraces leaders who are humble encouragers. They are not embracing leaders that seem to be like wildly charismatic. They're not seemingly embracing leaders that you would put up on a platform and say just preach to thousands of people. In verse 22, Luke writes, news of this, the great number of people believing and turning to Jesus, that's the news, it reaches the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then... Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Barnabas is a natural choice for the church in Jerusalem to send to Antioch. If we go back to chapter 4 of Acts, Luke introduces Barnabas this way. Joseph a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is from Cyprus, where many of the leaders of the church in Antioch are from and where many of the people who are responding to the gospel in Antioch are from. His character is well known by the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, so much so that they nickname him. They change his name. They, his name is Joseph, but they only refer to him as Barnabas because he is an encourager. 
And back in Acts 4, Luke makes sure to tell us that Barnabas is a Levite. If we remember the Old Testament, Levites were from the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and Levites were Israel's priests. So Barnabas is an encourager. He is generous. He sees and meets people's needs, and he's pastoral. And on top of that, Luke tells us here in Acts 11 that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. It's the only time in the book of Acts Luke refers to any person as good. Barnabas is the only person to be referred to as good. And Luke tells us that he's full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Luke's painting a picture of a person who is who's mature, who's mature in their faith and promotes that in other people. And we see Barnabas' humility at work too, I think. He gets to Antioch, he sees everything that's happening, he sees what the church looks like, and then rather than posture himself as the leader of it, he realizes there's somebody else better suited for this. I'm going to make the journey to Tarsus and go get Saul and bring Saul to Antioch so that Saul can start a teaching ministry here and so that Saul can help the church and its people grow and mature even more. In my experience, it takes a pretty humble person to be sent to provide leadership to something that's thriving and growing only for that person to get there and realize there's someone better suited for this than me. There isn't one aspect of the way that Barnabas engages in Antioch where it seems like he makes it about himself. It's all about serving the church, building people up, shepherding people, encouraging people, and helping the church grow. And again, just to highlight it, so far in the narrative, nothing supernatural has occurred and yet Luke for the second time says, in verse 24, a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Thousands of people's lives are being changed. And at least according to the narrative, to the text, not one supernatural thing has necessarily occurred yet. We have a group of faithful women and men living out Jesus' kingdom mission, building an inclusive community, figuring out how to share the gospel with a very diverse group of people, and it's led by somebody who is humble and an encourager and selfless. The fourth thing, and this is the final thing, that I think we should notice about the church in Antioch is that it practices generosity. Luke finishes chapter 11 by writing this. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus, he's gonna come back later in the book of Acts, stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. 
the church in Antioch receives a prophet named Agabus who prophesies that a famine is going to spread across the Roman Empire. And we know that historically, Agabus's prophecy comes true. The church in Antioch responds to this prophecy by immediately setting about meeting the needs of the Jerusalem church. A need that, based on Agabus' prophecy, is still a significant time off. They meet the need long before it's ever actually present. They don't wait for the famine to start to meet the need. They don't wait for people to be hungry to raise money. Instead, they immediately get about the work of pulling together their resource, each one as they were able, and taking up a collection that Barnabas and Saul are going to deliver to the Jerusalem church. Luke's language quite literally means to send aid. It's relief money before there's a disaster. It's not altogether unlike what I think we see the Red Cross do after a disaster, where they seek to raise money to meet people's needs. But here, the church in Antioch is sending aid money, they're sending relief money before the disaster ever happens. I love, too, that the church in Antioch, they likely have some relational ties to people who are in the church in Jerusalem, but largely... The people in the Jerusalem church are completely unknown to the people in the Antioch church. And yet, the church is so moved by the fact that their sisters and brothers in Jerusalem are going to need help that they act years in advance to meet their need. Like just for me, the idea of hearing hearing somebody say there's going to be a famine, believing it, and then deciding as a community We're all proactively going to bring what we can to meet that need years before it's going to happen for people we've never met before. That's a beautiful picture to me of the early church. It's a beautiful picture of what I think it means to be the church. So the church in Antioch empowers its people to live Jesus' kingdom mission. It's inclusive. It embraces humble and encouraging leaders, and it's generous. And all of this leads to the entire city of Antioch, which was the third most influential city in the entire Roman Empire, and a city that had up to 600,000 residents being influenced by the gospel. Just think of that for a moment. Historians are the ones who say that Antioch was the third most influential city in the entire Roman Empire, and 600,000 residents is almost twice as many as the city of Pittsburgh. It's a big city. And these regular, everyday women and men living Jesus' kingdom mission, building an inclusive community, embracing humble and encouraging leaders and who practice generosity, they influence an entire city. And we know that the entire city of Antioch was influenced by the gospel because of a small detail Luke slips into verse 26. There, Luke tells us, the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. The 
Christians, before they were Christians, the people who were in the early church, they referred to themselves as disciples and brothers. That was their language for themselves. The way Luke writes this sentence makes it clear. The people in the church didn't give this name to themselves. It was a name given to them by the people who lived in Antioch and who weren't a part of the church. And it was a derisive name. It was a mocking name. It was all of the people in Antioch looking at all of these people in this church and going, Christians, those crazy Christians. It's not at all like a term of endearment. Apparently, these followers of Jesus in Antioch were so distinctive from the culture around them, so weird when compared to the rampant immorality and prevalent worship of false gods, so ready to talk about Jesus, so ready to live faithful, good lives, that they were given a nickname, a nickname that Christians only started claiming for themselves in the second century. Decades go by before Christians start referring to themselves this way. Not everyone in Antioch becomes a follower of Jesus. Not everyone joins the church, but everyone knew who the Christians were. Everyone could identify who they were by the way they lived, loved, and talked. I would love for us to be a people who could be identified as followers of Jesus because of the ways we live, love, and talk. I believe we should be a church that empowers one another to live Jesus' kingdom mission. We should be a church that is inclusive, that's multi-ethnic, multi-racial, open to people of various lived experiences and racial backgrounds, that embraces humble, encouraging leaders, and a church that's generous. A church that might just be so generous that we set resource aside to meet needs before they ever happen. I believe that as we seek to do this, to be this kind of church and to be this kind of people, our individual and corporate lives together will be distinct from the culture around us. I'm not suggesting you need to go to work tomorrow and just outright evangelize all of your coworkers. I'm not suggesting you go home, knock on your neighbor's door, and just ask them without any relationship whatsoever, do you know Jesus? Caveat to that. Unless, of course, the sky is parted and you hear a voice from heaven tell you to do that, then do that. As we seek to empower one another, as we seek to be an inclusive space that's multi-ethnic, multi-racial, and open to people, as we seek to embrace and build up humble and encouraging leaders, as we seek to be generous, what we're doing is taking on the ways and character of Jesus. Jesus empowered his disciples, and that's what his followers, and followers to do what he was doing. 
he tells them, go and do likewise. Go and do what you've seen me do. He moved towards people who had been marginalized and excluded. He was humble and encouraging, and he was generous. And when we take on Jesus' character and ways and begin to live our lives like Jesus lived his, I think we'll inevitably begin to live lives that would mark us as Christians to the prevailing culture around us. The church in Antioch didn't influence a city because it had famous charismatic leaders. It influenced a city because it was made up of regular everyday people who lived good, faithful lives. We can do the same. But rather than set our sights on influencing an entire city, what if we set our sights on influencing the people who live on our street or who we work in close proximity with? What might it look like if we took on the slow and faithful work of representing Jesus every day for weeks, months, and years to come? What if we let our lives be the gospel? What would it look like if we committed ourselves to our communities and remained in them over the long term? Knowing that the longer we remain, the more meaningful our influence becomes. Just to say that real quick, our influence grows stronger when we stay in a place longer. A very good friend of mine is a teacher at a school here in the neighborhood. Um, I think he's the best English teacher in the city. He's got a doctorate in education. Could teach at any school in the region and make a lot more money. But he stays here. This is where he's called. This is where his family is planted. And this is where, over time, influence continues to deepen influence begins to become stronger. What's it look like for us to be people who remain? So, yeah, sorry. What the, what the church in Antioch is doing is what Jeremiah told the Israelites to do in Babylon. Jeremiah told the Israelites in Babylon there are all these prophets that were showing up to the Israelites in Babylon and saying, yes, you're in exile, but don't worry, you won't be here very long. You're all going to go back home real soon. And Jer Jeremiah has the audacity as a true prophet to show up and be like, these guys are lying to you. You're going to be here a very long time. So settle down. Like, buy homes, live here, plant gardens, grow food, marry your kids. Like, seek the welfare of the city in which you have been sent. That's what they're doing in Antioch. They've been dispersed because of persecution. They're exiles living outside of their homeland. And they have settled down. And they are making lives there. And they're seeking the welfare of the city around them. So let's set ourselves about the long, slow work of faithfulness too. Let's empower one another. Let's be inclusive. Let's embrace humble and encouraging leaders 
and let's be generous, willing to meet people's needs even before they experience them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for just that we get to have this conversation, that we get to talk about these things and wrestle through them. Would you please plant into our hearts the things that you want us to know, the things that you have for us to learn. Each one of us is on a journey. You are in the process, Jesus, of remaking each one of us more like yourself. And so, Father, for wherever we are in that journey, whatever we need to hear and be challenged by, whatever we need to think about, would you please do that work in us so that we can become more like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.